Welcome to All Shall Be Well, a conversation hosted by InterVarsity's women in the academy and professions. Giving voice to women seeking to live fully into their God-given callings and be a redeeming influence, whether in the university or beyond. This is Caroline Trissick, and our guest for this episode of All Shall Be Well is D.L. Mayfield. D.L. Mayfield, or Danielle, is a writer and activist who has spent over a decade working with refugee communities in the United States. Her work has been published in McSweeney's, The Washington Post, Christianity Today, Christian Century, Sojourners, Vox, and the Inglewood Review of Books. She is also the author of Assimilate or Go Home, Notes from a Failed Missionary on Rediscovering Faith and she lives in Portland, Oregon with her husband and two children. We recorded this interview to discuss her new book, The Myth of the American Dream, at the beginning of March, before things took a turn with the COVID-19 pandemic in the U.S. But the content of our conversation still feels profoundly relevant, as we talked about loving our neighbor, bearing with one another in suffering, and how Jesus' message in the Sermon on the Mount often rubs up against our cultural values of safety, autonomy, affluence, and power. As we are in the midst of our lives being turned upside down for a while, I hope this conversation will be a space to consider how Jesus is meeting us in this time and calling us to community and love of our neighbors in a new way. Well, Danielle, thank you so much for being a guest on our podcast today. We're glad to have you here. With most of our audience being women in academia, can you begin by sharing briefly about your educational background and how that has influenced who you are today? Yeah, thank you so much for having me on this podcast. My educational background is a little interesting. I I grew up in a very conservative Christian home, and I wanted to be a missionary from the age of six. And so I honestly didn't think much about higher education. And then a part of my story, which I write about in my first book, which is called Assimilate or Go Home, Notes from a Failed Missionary on Rediscovering Faith, is that when I was going to Bible college to get a degree in missions, I started volunteering with recently resettled Somali Bantu refugees. And this particular refugee community did not have access to literacy or education in their own country. And so when I was trying to teach them English through a resettlement agency, I realized like some people had never held a pencil in their entire life. And oh wow just the barriers upon barriers there were to successfully being assimilated in eight months, which is the goal of the U.S. Refugee Resettlement Program. And through my years of volunteering with this group, and then I ended up moving into an apartment complex with them, I realized, you know what, I think I want to get some education in teaching English to speakers of other languages. So I went ahead and got my master's in that, and I specialized in working with non-literate communities or communities who have not had any exposure to literacy, which is a very small subset of people, but they are extremely important, you know, in the eyes of God and in um, my eyes. So that's what I have my degree in. The funny thing is I teach English classes to this day, and currently I'm working on a curriculum that centers non-literate Muslim women as the main protagonist. And it's designed for like a multi-level community English class. This curriculum doesn't exist, which is why I'm writing it right now. But I do all of that just for free. And now kind of my income and my career is more freelance writing. So yeah, it's kind of a mixed bag in there. Okay, great. Yeah. And then the original work you did with Somali refugees, was that primarily women as well? Yeah, I was through Catholic Charities. I was assigned to work with one woman in particular, and then I ended up meeting many people in that community and working mostly with kids, actually, in the beginning. Okay. Now, I would say I almost exclusively work with adults because my master's education is in teaching adults. Okay, wonderful. And then can you share a little bit about your spiritual background? You said earlier that you grew up conservative. Can you share just about how that faith journey has also shaped you? Yeah. So my dad is a pastor. He has been one my whole life. My two sisters and I were homeschooled for most of our life. We kind of moved around to a lot of different places in the U.S., mostly in the Western parts like Wyoming, Alaska, Northern California, and Oregon. And yeah, I would say Christianity was the defining force of our lives. And I think a lot of my writing to this day still stems from me, I guess, 
taking it pretty seriously, this call to read the scriptures, to look at the life of Jesus, and then to examine my own life and say, what am I going to do in response <laughs> to, mm. to what Jesus is, is telling me God wants to see in the world? So yeah, I, I think it's an interesting time to be a white American evangelical Indeed. In, in the U.S. You know, we can be in the news a lot. But one thing I'm so grateful for is this respect for the scriptures. I just have this belief that God really cares about how we live our lives and how we love our neighbor. And that continues to, I guess, direct my life. Sure, sure. So The Myth of the American Dream is your most recent book. It comes out in May. Is that right now? Yeah, May 5th. Okay. Excellent. May 5th. So this podcast, I think, will be out before then. So people can pre-order InterVarsity Press or wherever you pre-order books. But yeah, what led you to write Myth of the American Dream? Yeah, I think going back to my childhood, to how I was raised, and then seeing sort of the political, economic, social landscape of the United States, I just thought there is something missing here for all of us in what it actually means to love our neighbor as ourselves. And I see that within my own life. I see that within other people's lives. And, you know, something that has been a part of my life for, I would say the past nine years is, is getting more into creative writing, getting more into trying to slow down and pay attention to my world. And I realized I was Mm. just thinking through what are the values that shape my life and where are those values coming from? Are they coming from God? Are they coming from my culture? Are they a mix? And I went to Bible college to study the Bible. And after being in relationship with, you know, very poor, non-literate, black, Muslim refugees in my own city and seeing how hard life was for them and seeing how cruel my own city was to them and how kind of forgotten they were, I would say, even in this economic system of of capitalism. When I went back and, and read the Gospels, I was really struck by how Jesus proclaimed his ministry, how he proclaimed what he came to the earth to do. You know, I was a good little Christian girl. I can mm-hmm. tell you that Jesus came to earth to die and, you know, take on our sins and be resurrected, right? We all know that sure, if, we, if sure, we grew yeah. up in Christianity. But when you go back and look, Luke 4 in particular just jumped out to me in a new way after I'd been in relationship with people who had suffered a lot. And mm-hmm. in Luke 4, this is when Jesus goes to the synagogue and this is the first time he does a sort of like public teaching, preaching in the synagogue, and he unrolls the scroll and he reads from Isaiah. Jesus says, you know, the spirit of the Lord is upon me to proclaim good news to the poor, to set at liberty the captive, to restore sight to the blind, and to set the oppressed free. And I thought, oh my gosh, I know all those people. You know, I know people mm-hmm. who are poor and who experience physical ailments and who have been captives and who who are actively being oppressed. And Jesus is saying he is good news for them. Mm. And it just blew me away. So, so there was that element of it. But then one day I was just like, huh, what if I just thought about, so this is Jesus in Luke four saying, this is where I'm going to be. This is where God is at work in the world. And this is who I came to preach the good news to. Well, what if we flipped it on its head? And so I thought to myself, what's the opposite of poor? Oh, it's, it's the rich. Okay. What's the opposite of people who are captive, people who are free. What's the opposite of people who are experiencing blindness or physical ailments. So I thought to myself, you know, maybe it's wellness or safety. And Mm -hmm. then what's the opposite of the oppressed. It would be oppressors or, or people in power. And so I just started to think, how do those values valuing money and freedom and safety and power, how do those values shape my life? And, and I realized they shape it a lot. And yeah. if I'm headed in the direction of those values, I am headed in the opposite direction of where Jesus said he would be doing his ministry. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of why I started writing the book. I just started writing essays about these values, how I see them shaping my life. I guess trying to be curious about trying to actually move in the direction of where Jesus said he would be working. 
So then you split the book up into those four different sections, affluence, autonomy, safety, and power. That gives me a little sense of why those were the themes that you chose. In a minute here, I'll ask you a question from each of those sections. But before that, near the beginning of the book, you quote Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., where he says, all men are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality, tied in a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one affects all indirectly. I can never be what I ought until you are what you ought to be. And this thread of mutuality kind of weaves throughout your whole book, particularly in the stories about your neighbors who you mentioned just a little bit ago. Can you share more about this longing that you hold in your life for mutuality? Yeah, I love that Dr. King quote because my personality can sometimes feel overwhelmed by the needs of the world and by the needs of my neighbors and by the level of injustice and inequality we see in our own country. And so Dr. Kim, I think, does this beautiful reframing instead of saying, you know, what am I responsible for? He says, we are all bound up in this together. And it's actually this beautiful web. And when people who are experiencing suffering start to flourish, like we will all flourish. And so to me, that's a really positive reframing. And I think a biblical one, we don't have mm-hmm. to go through life in the depths of despair. Although I, I do that sometimes just to be perfectly <laughs> honest. Um, sure. But it's an invitation into actual relationships. So looking at my degree as a teacher is a really interesting way of looking at this because I would think, you know, most professionals, most teachers would say, you know, you need to have a degree of, they wouldn't really say power, but you know, there needs to be some difference between you and your students. And for me, especially with the populations I am working with, that was actually counterproductive Mm -hmm. to what our Mm -hmm. goals were. And my goal is not to have my students learn to speak English perfectly. My goal is to help make their life even just a little bit easier in the United States. So for me, I realize hierarchy is not helping anything here. And instead I need to start to pursue mutuality. And this will actually help make me better able to adapt my lessons to what is actually going on in their lives. This will help them to feel comfortable and honored and be able to possibly absorb and retain more information. And so you know, for my English classes, they look really different than ones you would find in a college setting. I make tea and coffee and halfway through the class, I serve the students just as a way of sort of upending that normal power dynamic. I make sure to center their stories. And that's actually the curriculum I'm writing is these are stories the students have told me and I write that into the lesson and then they feel like they get to be the experts when talking about it. And so that's a little bit of an upending of the normal way we would approach being a teacher and being a student. But the end result is we have these incredible classes and we actually develop real relationships. And I teach in my community. And so my students aren't just students. They're also my neighbors and they're also my friends. And I had surgery four weeks ago. And some of my friends who I've taught English with for a few years now, they brought me food like five days in a row. Like they would not stop coming and bringing me food. And to me, that's such a picture of, of mutuality. Mm, and mm-hmm. the benefits are amazing. It's not just good food, but it's actual real relationship, which I think is the heart of God. Sure. Yeah. And I wonder, what are your thoughts then, particularly for women in the university setting, whether it's professors or even even students, like grad students or, or med students, how that mutuality might be practiced or lived out in that context. Yeah. And I, I think I do have a unique context and there's of course an appropriate place for boundaries. Sure. One of the rule of thumbs I have as far as teaching, but you know, basically any way I'm looking at the ethic of how I live my life is we need to focus on who is farthest away from a place of flourishing. So you can look in your class, say who is you know, there's different ways to say it, the most marginalized, the most disadvantaged person here. And how do we center and tailor our curriculum and teaching to them? And I honestly think the ripple effects are everyone will learn, everyone will benefit, but we really need to start to shift to center the person who is the farthest away from flourishing. And I actually think that's a biblical precedent. I think the Old Testament shows us over and over again that in God's eyes, a community is not flourishing if anybody is suffering, which is why, 
you know, the Old Testament always points out there's this Randy Woodley calls it the triad of the vulnerable in the Old Testament, which is the orphan, the widow and the foreigner. And that's why as a society, we need to prioritize and their preferences and what they need. And once we do that, everybody will flourish. And so I would think that's something that can apply to most classes if just trying to maybe change who we're centering. Yeah, absolutely. That's really helpful. Cause I, I mean, I, we always hear the, the question, well, maybe not always, but we hear the question often, like who is not at the table. Um, mm-hmm. But that question of who is not flourishing or who doesn't have the opportunity to flourish in this space and to work toward helping that person flourish is a great question to have in mind. So thank you. Yeah. So then in the section on affluence, you wrote about your curiosity to know the stories of hardship, about your daydream of having a radio show that would highlight stories of people who have actually experienced significant financial difficulty rather than those who have kind of overcome and to know more about the systems and structures that keep people down. And you wrote, to be curious about any other answer is to open wide the door of responsibility, of kinship, of strings that connect our well-being to the well-being of everyone else. And this section stirred up a lot of feelings for me, just reflecting on my own origins of affluence and then times later in life of financial struggle that were pretty significant for my husband and I. And we didn't really invite anyone into that space with us because of the shame, just the culture of not talking about money, except maybe, you know, the the Christian culture of you need to pay off all your debt Mm -hmm. and that sort of thing, right? Yeah. And I've often thought about what it was that kept us from being honest about our need and struggle. And as you noted your desire to have those types of stories highlighted, I'm curious to hear more of your thoughts on what you think creates the silence around struggles with affluence. Yeah, I think that a lot of us have internalized this idea that affluence is a sign of God's blessing. Even if we would say, no, 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 that's not what I believe. I think our lives bear out the fact that, yeah, we are silent when we struggle. At least people who come from certain middle-class backgrounds or above, you know, people in poverty, it's not like a monolithic group, but some communities are more open to talking about their struggles and relying on each other because they've had to become more open and honest in order to survive Mm. and to lean on each other. But I think I was really interested in just looking at how pursuing affluence in an unequal society gives us this idea that somebody has to lose and and we don't want it to be us. So that's something I just Mm. really wanted to keep going and pursuing in my own life saying, wait a minute, I just want to say maybe, maybe Jesus was right when he said, blessed are the poor, you know, because Mm. I think we don't feel blessed when we are struggling financially. And I think academia is probably a really interesting world because from what I can gather, it's not the most lucrative field in the world. Right. (laughs) And yet it's highly specialized. You have to have a lot of education. So it's probably a really interesting place to flesh out more of these conversations. I think I was coming from a place of, I live in a neighborhood that is very poor. I'm surrounded by neighbors who who are poor. And I myself, I'm from a middle-class background and I still am in that field. And so just wondering what is being a neighbor look like when we are not equal? I've been really interested in looking at what the Bible has to say about money. The Bible has so much to say about money. And this is something I was not taught in Bible college. You know, I thought the Bible is mostly about sin and idolatry, but it's pretty obsessed with economics. when You take another look at it. And one of my favorite theologians is Walter Brueggemann. And he talks about a really prominent theme, especially in the Old Testament, is the amnesia of affluence. And so what happens to people or communities when they become affluent? You know, the first sign that they are walking away from the commandments of God is that they forget the poor. They forget the poor in their midst. And so that's something I just want to keep on my mind is how can we all work against that amnesia of affluence and start to really notice the poor and to be curious how they get there. I think another hallmark of my growing up, and this is a little bit connected to autonomy and individualism, but we we tend to just assign morality to people based off of their individual economic circumstances. And I think we do need to get a little bit better at looking at the systems that create poverty, keep people in poverty and keep certain groups from accessing wealth. And so, you know, taking a little bit off the discussions of, wow, you're in debt, but you still got a latte, you know, if you just right, stop right. lattes, 
you would be fine. And instead saying like, wow, why do we have this system where you have to go into debt $200,000 just to get your degree? Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Sort of shifting the focus a little bit from the latte thing, which don't get me wrong. I definitely judge people who get fancy lattes. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just kidding. But that's not exactly where the conversation should be. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And then you mentioned autonomy, which is the next section in the book. And you write about the significance and the gift of paying attention to and loving our neighbors. And of course, you look to one of the models of neighborliness, good old Mr. Rogers. Can you share a little bit about how he has influenced your compassion to invest in your neighbors as well? Yes, I love Mr. Rogers with my whole heart. And not just because he was like, you know, this gentle, amazing person. I actually think he was one of the most intense people that ever lived. And, you know, early on when he was doing his show, Mr. Rogers Neighborhood, he got a lot of criticism because it wasn't exactly like Sesame Street. And he had a little bit of critique for Sesame Street. You know, they were very much about teaching kids how to, you know, know the alphabet, know their numbers. They had like lots of zany music and flashy cuts. And Mr. Rogers, he actually told the American panel of psychiatrists, I believe, he did a speech to them. And he said, what's not important is a kid learning the alphabet or learning their numbers. What's important is what are they going to use that knowledge for? Because Mm -hmm. the people who ran the concentration camps in Germany knew their alphabet. What do we actually want kids to do? And, you know, Mr. Rogers was really influenced by his faith. He was actually an ordained Presbyterian minister, like the first ordained minister of television. It's kind of amazing. Mm -hmm. And he knew from the outset that what he wanted to do is he wanted kids to know that they were loved just as they were and to go out with that knowledge and be good neighbors. And I just think that's so powerful because we can get on this treadmill of, we want to learn more. We want to earn more. We want to be the best. We want our kids to succeed, but to what end, what, what are we actually wanting here? And I want people, I want my own kids, not just to, I don't want them to be the best. Honestly, what I want them to know is that they are loved by God And then to take that love and pour it out into their neighborhood, into other people. For me, Mr. Rogers is just such an amazing example of what someone who is walking into their vocation looks like and how he is so impacted by God's love for the world that he wants to spread it to other people. Yeah. And I assume you saw the the most recent movie. Wait, there was a documentary first and then this most recent movie. And I keep getting the titles mixed up. So I think- Oh, me too. I saw them both. Yes. Likewise. We just saw the one with Tom Hanks. Which one is that? Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood? Is that so. the right title? I, I actually like the documentary a little bit better. So did I. It goes, so it goes did into I. his inner world more, mm-hmm. um, but they're both good. Yeah. But even just the way he would in the Tom Hanks movie, how he slows down and totally veers from what he's even supposed to be doing to spend time with the guy. I can't remember anything that I just Lloyd. watched. Yeah. Yeah. Lloyd. Yes. <laughs> Thank you. It's where he slows down and basically like he's everybody sort of around him is frustrated that he's not doing the task, but he's instead spending time and investing in people. And I see that in the book often where you have these moments where you slow down and you share a story about a moment that you had with people. And one of those stories was the story about cherries. And I guess we'll save that and let the reader go buy the book. But the story about cherries basically had that theme of inviting people to sit and listen to stories of suffering and sadness and how that can be both heart-wrenching and beautiful. And you wrote, now my eyes are trained toward growing in solidarity, in mutuality, and slowing down enough to listen and sit with, to be a witness to the work of God in a very broken world feels miraculous. I'm wondering how might we learn to train our eyes toward this work, to learn to slow down and listen and sit with people? Yeah, I think part of my story is going to school to be a missionary. You know, I was trained to witness people and convert them to what I believe. And as I continue in relationship with God and relationship with my neighbors, I really am trying more to be a witness, to stick around long enough to see the reality, to be invited into real relationship and to pursue following and obeying God together with my neighbors. So for me, that's been a huge shift. You know, Simone Weil has this really interesting quote where she says, prayer is the art of paying attention 
And that's something I tried to talk about a bit in my book is paying attention to our world. And that includes the big systemic injustices, but it also has to go down to like the very smallest details of our actual neighborhoods where we've been placed, paying attention as a Christian discipline and inviting God to show us opportunities to love and be loved where we're at is, is so important. And some, sometimes people reach out to me and say, you know, how can I learn to love my neighbor? How can I be a better neighbor? And one of the first things I usually think to myself is we have to learn to slow down because you have to be present, mm-hmm. right? That's the first yeah. requirement to be able to listen is you have to be around. And so part of paying attention and part of being a good neighbor is slowing your life down, which is really, really hard, I think, mm-hmm. in our society. And it's interesting. Like we, my family, we don't have a lot of extracurriculars. We don't go a lot of places. We are just around a lot. And it that is what has enabled us to get to know our neighbors better. The shift you mentioned in the word witness, how, you know, in Christian evangelicalism, particularly, we're taught to be a witness to witness means to share the gospel with someone. Mm-hmm. Here I'm hearing you say to be a witness is actually to witness someone's story or to witness their life, to sit and listen to them before offering Jesus. Yeah. And for me, it also really decenters myself, right? So evangelism oh, sure, yeah. for me was saying, I have all the right answers. Let me tell them to you. And witnessing God at work in the world puts all that focus back on God. <laughs> and I right. just get to be a mutual participant in having my life transformed to follow God. Because I think that's the other thing. I have not arrived. I am not there. I am on a journey of discipleship to be more like Jesus. And I am being discipled by my neighbors. Even if they're Muslim, even if they are from a Christian background, they still teach me things about following God. And I I need to be able to be open to that. Absolutely. So then the next section is safety. And in that section, you raise to the surface many of the things that we can be fearful about. You list out a whole bunch of things that we can be afraid of. And even as much as the fears related to keeping our children safe, to our own mortality and the reality that we can't really ever be totally safe. And then you contrast it all with a story about a a visit to Disneyland. Can you share a little more about that juxtaposition and how you see the desire for safety as part of the myth of the American dream? Yeah, I think the Disneyland chapter is going to confuse people. (laughs) (laughs) But for me, it was important to put it in there because the truth is I love Disneyland, even though it maybe doesn't make sense there. But yeah, I think in the safety chapter, I wanted to look at the myths we tell ourselves that if only we have the right things in place, we can protect those we love from suffering, from pain and from death. And, you know, that's just, it's not true. And kind of going through some of those themes can be hard. One of the bigger issues I try and focus on a little bit in that section is how our desire for safety, you know, can lead us to demonize entire groups of people And I would say in the U.S., the issue of immigration and refugee resettlement has become very politicized to Mm -hmm. the point where the U.S. refugee resettlement system at this point has all but been demolished. I mean, honestly, Mm. it'll take at least a decade for it to be built back up if by some miracle we changed our laws and started allowing refugees back into the country. And so, you know, I'm dealing with some grief myself because for the past 12 years, 13 years, I've been working closely with refugee communities, teaching them, and the whole landscape has changed. People aren't being allowed in and people aren't coming. And so yeah, that was, that was a big issue for me. And then I, so then I kind of switch and, and write about taking a vacation to Disneyland and how much I loved it. But really it's an essay on how do we build resilience in a really broken world? So like once we do start to learn to pay attention, once we do learn how to be curious and we start to become overwhelmed with the sin in the world and and even in ourselves, you know, how do we deal with that? And I think a lot of our culture is kind of obsessed with self-care and, you know, just take a bath and have a glass of wine. And to me, that's not enough. And so I'm really interested in learning from groups that have experienced oppression and marginalization, you know, what are they telling us to do? And, And they are people who have built resilience. And so really shifting our perspective away from like, how can I take care of myself and how can I learn how to build resilience? I think it's something that's really important for us 
to consider. And so for me, I think Disneyland is a place I go and I'm happy, but, you know, recognizing the superficiality of that. But I guess it it ties to me into this bigger picture. One of my favorite people is Dorothy Day, and she started the Catholic Worker Movement in the 1930s in New York City. And she's just this radical lady, had a voluntary vow of poverty her entire life. She was really intense. But she talked all the time, especially in her private journals, about her duty to delight. And so she was surrounded by Mm. people who were homeless, people who were suffering, the poorest of the poor, all these problems all the time. And she still thought it was her Christian duty to, you know, take a moment when she's drinking her coffee, eating a piece of pie, listening to a beautiful piece of music, reading her favorite novel to recognize God in those moments too. And so she has this duty to delight. And in her entire life and work, I see it contrasting and working beautifully together with a duty to despair. So I think that's something I'm trying to write through and work through in my own life is, is as a Christian, I feel like I have a duty to both of those things. And, you know, it's a tension we have to live in. And I, and I don't think it can be easily resolved. So the duty to delight and the duty to despair that yeah. both are part of our relationship with Jesus and our relationship with our neighbors. Yeah. So you mentioned that you're learning from your neighbors how to build resilience. Can you share more about that and what you've learned? Yeah, I think going back to just that duty of delight, I talk a lot about food and the food neighbors. (laughs) (laughs) I loved that. I loved that part of it. Yeah. And I think that's just, for me, such a good picture of resilience building. And I don't even know if I actually wrote this in the book, but I love baking and I love sugar. I'm just, I just love sugar so much. And I love baking (laughs) for my neighbors. The funny thing is like, they don't really like it that much because (laughs) it's too sweet. And so now I've just sort of learned to take a step back. I don't actually make hardly anything for my neighbors anymore. And instead they just shower me with these meals and these foods that they learned how to cook from their mothers, from their communities. And I just receive it as this act of love. And and for me, I, sometimes I would wonder like, why won't they eat my food? You know, I would like cook an entire Thanksgiving meal. And some of my neighbors, you know, who come from forced migration backgrounds or from the refugee community, they would take like one bite and then just say, no, thanks. I don't want to eat anymore. I would feel so hurt. Like I I worked so hard for this and I've eaten so much of your food with a smile on my face. But now I have think of that almost as one of their methods of building resiliency for them has been saying so much has been taken away from me in my life. I'm Mm going to cook the food I like. I'm going to cook the food of my culture and I'm not going to capitulate on that. So for now, so now I'm just like, dude, this is amazing. I will happily eat your food and I'm not going to cook you Thanksgiving food anymore because you don't like it. And maybe you have a point. Maybe turkey is really dry and boring. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that reminds me of the story in your book about the Instapot. I don't know if you can share that or people, do they have to just go buy the book? No, I will talk about that really quick. Okay. Okay. Share that story. Yeah. So I definitely work with well-meaning people a lot who want to help communities who are in poverty or help refugees. Maybe they don't live in a place where they're in relationship with people. And the church I was attending at the time was really amazing. They collected all of this stuff to give away at Christmas because people love to be generous at Christmas. And they were supposed to be asking for rice cookers because that's what the refugee resettlement had asked for. But some people went ahead and bought instant pots. And so my friend reached out to me. She's like, do you know anybody who could use these? I thought, oh my gosh. So many of my friends, like their entire life revolves around cooking because their families only like the foods of their culture. And it usually involves like really tough cuts of meat that have to cook for really long periods of time. This would make their life so much better. And so I gave a few instant pots to my friends, including one of my friends. I think I call her Marianne in that story. And I show up one day and the instant pot is nowhere to be found. And I asked her about it and she was like, oh yeah, it took up way too much counter space because it has to be plugged in and it's really huge and actually didn't fit on any of her counters. And then she said, you know, I'm just going to keep using my magic pot. And she showed me this pot and it was this like huge, thick metal pot. And I've never seen one like it. It was like kind of smaller at the bottom and then it gets bigger. And then the top, and it's like a very old school style of pressure cooker. Not, you know, Mm -hmm. not electric at all. And she actually had carried it with her 
from Afghanistan to the United States. Like it's so wow. heavy. She couldn't take very many things with her at all. In fact, you know, as I've gotten to know her, I've, I've understood she had to leave all of her sewing supplies, all of these mm. beads she had carefully saved up, you know, she had to leave all of that. And she took this pot with her to the United States and it worked just like the instant pot. But it was familiar to her. I just had no idea that she even had that because of my ignorance. I thought, oh my gosh, I'm going to make her life better. I'm going to make her life mm-hmm. easier. I'll give her this thing. But it didn't actually work for her life. And then she told me, she calls her pot the magic pot because she will cook her family's dinner in it. And then, you know, she'll empty it out and she'll put it outside her door. And then one of her neighbors will take that pot back to their apartment and cook their family's dinner. And like several families use this pot and it's a communal way to share. And and for me, the instant pot just became sort of this little symbol of yeah. American autonomy. Like we love mm-hmm. this pot and we use it ourselves, but my friend's pot had so much culture and history and actually was communal source of blessing. And so for mm. me, it was just this really interesting time to reflect on myself and how much I, I sometimes want like a quick solution to my friends, what I perceive to be my friend's problems. Mm. But instead being asked to say like, wow, how can we start to think about solutions that include more than just us or one person. Right. And I'm yeah. just so grateful. My friendships with refugee communities and, and communities in poverty have showed me that Jesus was absolutely right when he said, blessed are the poor. They are the ones that have had to rely on mutual relationships for so long. And therefore, they're the ones who can teach us going forward if we want to learn to live less autonomous lives. You know, we're going to have to learn from people who've had to rely on each other. Right. And then there's the beauty. It's just a beautiful image of everyone sharing that the magic pot in contrast with, you know, the everybody's like sort of locked up in their own homes with their instant pot cooking their own individual meals for their family. I mean, not that the instant pot is bad. No, I just got one and I love it to be perfectly honest. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, I don't have one, but I'm really like a terrible cook altogether. Maybe that could change things, but (laughs) I don't know. Anyway, so then the last section is on power. And there are so many questions I could ask related to that last section of the book. But to connect it particularly to the context of our listeners, who are mostly women in higher education, you mentioned becoming aware of the power you have and essentially using it to change systems and to build relationships with people. Do you have any thoughts for women in academia about how to become more aware of the power we hold and how maybe to use it to bring change? I think that's a really big question. And I would like to hear other people (laughs) and not myself, but it makes me think about this one essay I wrote in the book about this experience I had of of going to Cambridge last summer. And I had never really been in a setting like that um, in England and just this historic place of learning and education. And again, I'm coming from a little bit of like a fundamentalist background where I never even thought I would end up going to college. And so to be in this historic place and all these like pictures of these really important, famous men, you know, all these scientists, there's like a plaque on every corner in Cambridge about some famous person who like discovered mathematics or, you know, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And being in this chapel that had been built in like the 1400s, seeing these really old common prayer books from the 1700s, I just thought this is incredible. And I'm a part of this history. I'm in this history. It's so beautiful. And And yet recognizing I did not see myself fully in those spaces because every picture was of a white man. I mean, I'm a white woman, but you know, they were all men. And then after having service in one of these chapels, it was actually Maudlin Chapel. They were the last school in Cambridge to admit women into their college. And that wasn't until 1988. And so recognizing like we are tied to these traditions that are beautiful and longstanding, and yet they have excluded so many people for Mm -hmm. so long, including women. And so now that spaces are being opened up, it doesn't right all the wrongs. And I think for myself, particularly as a white woman, it's, it's a really interesting place of tension to be because in some ways I'm experiencing some discrimination because of my gender. And yet I also experience privilege because of my race or because of my economic background. And so I don't think there's any cut and dried way to say at any one time you're fully privileged or fully not privileged. There's always going to be some sort of a spectrum. And so again, looking back at the scriptures, maybe 
instead of trying to say like, who has the power? Can I get the power? Where am I in relation to power? You know, we might need to continually change the focus back to that biblical concept of who is not flourishing. How Mm -hmm. can we help communities who are not flourishing to flourish? And I think that going back to that concept of shalom in the scriptures has been really powerful for me. And I'm really influenced by Lisa Sharon Harper, who wrote the book, very good gospel talks about how basically shalom is what the kingdom of God smells like. So the kingdom Mm -hmm. of God is the thing, the number one thing Jesus was obsessed about, the number one thing he talked about. And the kingdom of God is God's dream being set into action on earth. So again, where everybody who has not been flourishing is in a place of flourishing. And so Randy Woodley is this indigenous theologian, and he says that we can know if we have shalom or not by looking at the most disadvantaged in our society. And I think when we do that in the United States, it's clear we have such a long way to go. And so no matter where we are, if we're in academia, if we're English teachers, we can always be aware of that question. Who is the farthest away from flourishing and how can I be a part of extending flourishing to them? And so maybe that's not such a direct answer to your question, but for me, I I just really want to be able to live in this place of understanding that I do have power and what is God asking me to do with that? No, that's a great answer to the question. Again, it brings us back to considering, kind of paying attention and noticing how people are doing and what can I do with the role that I've been given to help others flourish. Yeah. So, yeah. And so you mentioned Shalom and you write in the book as well, quoting Lisa Sharon Harper's book, The Very Good Gospel. When you write about that Hebrew term Shalom, can you share more about what Shalom means to you and where you are finding Shalom these days? Yeah, I think for me, it doesn't mean feeling happy and good all the time because (laughs) I think if you read my book, you'll recognize that's not how I feel. Um, (laughs) Yes, that's very clear. (laughs) Very clear. So it's this deeper and richer understanding of what is God's dream for the world. And I love the play Hamilton, which maybe not everybody is familiar with, but it's this really interesting reimagining of some of the founding fathers. And one of the songs in there is based off of George Washington and his favorite scripture verse. Apparently he referenced it over 40 times in his actual personal correspondence was Micah 4.4, where everyone shall sit under their own vine and fig tree and no one shall make them afraid. And that's this idea for a society where everyone has access to shelter and meaningful work and they aren't living in fear. And, you know, this is God's dream for a society. And and George Washington saying like, that's what moved him. And it's just this beautiful picture. And for me, when I hear that, like my heart leaps up within me, right? That's what I want for everybody. I don't want that Mm -hmm. just for myself. I want that Mm -hmm. for everybody. And that's a picture of Shalom. And that makes me feel so good. And then, you know, this is just my personality, but I just have to go there and say, as George Washington was obsessed with that scripture verse, you know, didn't he, he have slaves? Yes. He's someone who <laughs> yeah, enslaved okay. hundreds of people. Right. And he, he was a yeah. part of creating a constitution or certain people. I mean, if you weren't a land owning white male, you did not get any of those rights to experience that dream. So that's something we have to live in is you can even say, I love God's dream for the world. And then look at all who you exclude. And that's Mm kind of what our nation was founded on. And we have so much work to do to extending that dream to everyone. I mean, I hear you kind of cringing as you say, this is what our nation was founded on, right? How do we, I don't know, this may be a huge question, but how do we begin to undo that? I think it is a really big question. And, you know, what I've heard from people who have read The Myth of the American Dream, there is a sense of like, well, what do we do now? What's next? Do we have to scrap everything and start over? And, you know, I think it's okay to just sit with that for a while because that's where we have to start to start is we have to start to sit. We have to start to listen to stories of people who the American Dream, first of all, they haven't experienced it. And second of all, like, it's pretty clear that it was never designed for them anyways. So that's probably number one is we we do need to start to just sit in the tension, listen to the stories of people who are not experiencing shalom in our own country. And then I think it's honestly an exciting time to learn from the people 
where Jesus always said he was going to be with, right? So Mm -hmm. people who are experiencing poverty, people who have experienced captivity, oppression, it's an exciting time for us to center them. And as a Christian, center them theologically, spiritually. I would love to see our nation center them with their policies. You know, I'm praying that our immigration system would become more in line with the kingdom of God, that it wouldn't be ruled by fear. So I think there's things we can pray for and work towards, but we live in this incredible time where we have social media, we have books, we can immerse ourselves in these communities who have always been shut out from the American dream. And we can read them, we can follow them on social media, and and we can really just sit back and listen. It's, It's an incredible time, I think, for us who have maybe come from these privileged positions to really learn. Yeah, just even beginning by learning. That's what I'm hearing you say. I don't, yeah, I don't think social media is nothing, you know? Sure, yeah. It's an incredible way to open ourselves up to diverse ways of thinking of how people see the world and being uncomfortable. I think, you know, as a white woman, I don't want to be uncomfortable. I don't want to feel like I'm a bad person, but social media gives me an excellent opportunity to just sit and be uncomfortable and listen. And it's just kind of a wonderful form of discipleship, actually. Yeah. If you're willing to curate your feed on whatever platform to include people that are not the same as you, right? Oh, yeah. So did you say where you're finding Shalom? Trying to remember. Oh, did I? I don't know. (laughs) I'm just thinking of the chapter that's called Waking Up Sad. And you write about how you often wake up sad. And so I'm curious where you find Shalom in those times. Yeah. Again, going back to paying attention to the world, I still get really stuck on only being able to see injustice and the things that are wrong with the world, you know, whether it's with my daughter's school, which is super low income and just the systemic inequality I see there, or all the developments going up in my neighborhood, which are going to price out my beloved neighbors. You know, I I can get Mm -hmm. so fixated on that, but I really am learning to pay attention to the good, right? So sitting with my son and reading a book for like the hundredth time and just saying, thank you, God, for the blessing of this child. Or, you know, right now it's spring in Oregon and Mm. the trees are starting to burst into these pink blossoms. And, you know, I planted these bulbs a few years ago and they never came up. And then this year they suddenly are. And I just have Mm. to say, wow, this is a sign of God. And it sounds so hokey to me because you know, my mom, when I was growing up, was like obsessed with flowers. And I was, I was like, oh, there's such a waste of time. And now the older I get, the more I'm like, I'm so happy for spring. And it points me to a God of resurrection and a God yeah. of beauty in the midst of suffering. And if we have to start that small, that's okay. And that gives me, you know, the courage to keep showing up and fighting and praying for a better world, even though I don't see a lot of systemic instances of the world prioritizing my neighbors. God Mm. gives us all, rich and poor, these beautiful blossoms, and me and my neighbors can both enjoy them, and that's really important to me. Wonderful. Thank you for sharing that. And then we like to conclude the podcast with the same question to all of our guests. Is there a particular quote, scripture, song, or other set of words that have been meaningful to you lately and, and why it resonates with you at this time? Maybe this isn't an appropriate response, but I kind of want to talk about the scripture verse that disturbs me the most. Is that okay? (laughs) Okay. Um, You're the first to do that. So well well done. Um, Well done. So in Luke 10, there's this pretty famous story of this lawyer or scribe asking Jesus, what must I do to be saved? And he's someone who knows the scriptures inside and out. And Jesus says, you know, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And so I think a lot of us who've grown up Christian know that story. And actually, it's really important to me because that's such a beautiful and concise way of summing up the Bible, (laughs) love God and love your neighbor. But then I think we often miss what happens next. And the lawyer or the scribe, the person who knows the scriptures inside and out, and would probably know that that's what Jesus would say. It says next in Luke 10 that he wasn't satisfied and seeking to justify himself, he asked Jesus, well, who is my neighbor? And so that little thing has stuck out to me for so long, seeking to justify himself. 
Hmm. He said, who is my neighbor? And, and to me, that's kind of what defines our ethics currently in the United States is so many of us are just begging to be able to exclude certain groups of people from neighbor love, you know, or Mm -hmm. kind of like begging God saying, please don't make me love this group of people. Please don't make me view them as people made in your image. Please tell me there's an out here that there Mm -hmm. are some neighbors I don't have to love. And I think we all know what Jesus' response is to that. And in fact, he tells the story of the Good Samaritan. Right. And in the story of the Good Samaritan, it's the person we least likely to expect who is the person who extends hospitality to Mm -hmm. the stranger. And that has been so true in my life is I live and work in a neighborhood filled with refugees, people who are villainized day in and day out in our media. And they're the ones who extend hospitality to me and everyone around them. And they're the Mm -hmm. ones who are showing me how to move forward in a world filled with brokenness, how to move forward with resilience and hospitality and love even when they have every right to be filled with fear. And so that's just a scripture verse that has been on my heart and mind. And I want it to continue to disturb me, if I'm being perfectly honest. I don't ever want to think I'm above begging God to not have to love certain people, because I certainly have that within me. Sure. Yeah. And the question actually was what scripture or song or set of words has been meaningful to you lately. So you didn't, you didn't veer off. It was, you're right on target. And I I appreciate that because even the scripture that disturbs us can be the place where Jesus meets us. Oh yeah. That's my testimony in a nutshell, probably. (laughs) (laughs) Wonderful. Well, it was so great to chat with you and um, I really appreciate you offering your time and your wisdom and your experiences and stories. So thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this episode of All Shall Be Well, Conversations with Women in the Academy and Beyond. This is Caroline Trissick, and information about our guests can be found on our podcast page at thewell.intervarsity.org slash podcasts. This has been a production of Women in the Academy and Professions, a focused ministry initiative of InterVarsity Christian Fellowship USA. We value the contribution of podcast guests who are not employed by InterVarsity, and we acknowledge that the opinions of our guests may or may not represent the ministry, doctrine, or policies of InterVarsity. Thank you for joining our conversation as we engage in faith and life together. We'd love to hear your feedback. To share your thoughts or to learn more about who we are or the resources and connections we provide, we invite you to visit us at our online gathering place, The Well. You can find us at thewell.intervarsity.org.